Welcome to the One Life Podcast, where we have rare but vital conversations about Jesus. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the One Life Podcast. One Life is a startup church here in Nashville, Tennessee. Our mission is to build extended families of disciples that live on mission together. I am Tiffany Ketchum, and here with me is my husband and co-host, Tim Ketchum. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me? (laughs) We're really glad you're listening, and welcome to episode 30. 30? Oh, (laughs) that's not over the hill, but yeah, we're kind of getting to that point, aren't we? We're getting now. We're still young. (laughs) Still young. So we've been talking about Noah, and I think we still have a little bit more that we want to discuss in this story. Yeah, so we're we're trying to pick up common themes in all these stories because there are threads that run through them, and we're going to get the back end of the story of Noah, which often gets overlooked because it's a little bit, shall we say, um, PG-13-ish, mm. if you understand it properly. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely tricky to like understand it properly, mm-hmm. oh, which by the way, you may want to not listen to this again with the young gears around. So, because we are talking about Noah after the flood, so. That's a good warning. I appreciate you putting it out there. Okay, so we're, we're gonna jump into the story where the flood has already ended. The ark has landed, most likely in Turkey, in Mount Ararat is what the traditional understanding is. And Noah and his family come out of the ark and we're going to pick up where they're actually kind of living. Like, so there's only eight people, presumably, there's only eight people on the earth uh, right now. It's sort of like this big reset. You know, ideally, you're starting over. You have Noah, who's been walking with God, and God chose him because he was a righteous man. And you're thinking, man, this is going to get off to a great start. It's a fresh start. Fresh start. Yeah, let's let's see what happens. <laughs> Okay, so we're in Genesis 9, and we're going to start in verse 20. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank from its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem and may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. So this is a little confusing <laughs> if you don't know <laughs> what's going on. Yeah, it, it's partly due to translation, but it's also there's an, what they call an idiom in the text. There, there's a phrase that is sort of like a, a more polite way of saying people had sex. And that phrase is uh, uncovered the nakedness. And so if you go up into the book of Leviticus, for example, Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 17, it equates the 
concept of seeing someone's nakedness with actually uncovering their nakedness. And they're, they're kind of used interchangeable there. And basically what it means is, is that you had sexual relations. And, but what's even more interesting is if you go back two chapters more in Leviticus is to sleep with someone's wife, it actually says that you uncover the nakedness of the husband. Okay, so some people have traditionally thought that, you know, the first sort of way of approaching this is like, oh, you know, Ham saw his dad naked. And it's like, well, what's the big deal? You right. know, <laughs> I mean, he left his tent door open and he forgot to shut it, you know. Right. It's not something you would curse over. Yeah. You wouldn't curse somebody's kid over that, you know. Another interpretation is that uh, Ham went in and actually had sex with Noah and that he raped his father when he was drunk. But if you do some further examination, like in the book of Leviticus, you realize really what's going on here is that Ham, uh, you know, think about it. There's three sons and they're potentially the only three people on the earth, but there's a pecking order. You know, there's the firstborn son, then there's the secondborn and thirdborn. And the firstborn is the one that receives the majority of the inheritance. And they also take on this sort of like, you know, uh, kingly role. And so what Ham is doing is he goes in while his father is drunk and actually rapes his mother. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to produce a seed that will trump the seed of his two brothers. And this is one of the reasons why when Noah figures out what happened, he curses Canaan and not Ham. Because Ham was actually trying to uh, secure a royal bloodline for his family, and Canaan was going to be that bloodline. And Noah says, "Uh uh-uh, that's not happening. Um, In fact, instead of Canaan being the primary firstborn son in this royal line, He's going to be a servant of his brother Japheth, and he's going to be a servant of his brother Shem. And And just to clarify, Canaan is? So Canaan is the offspring of the sexual union between Ham and his mother. And so there's there's a little bit of like an axe to grind here too, because once you get up into the book of Joshua and Numbers, you start to see some of the sexual perversion among the people in the land of Canaan. And so they're kind of saying, hey, this kind of thing runs in the family. Uh, the, the people that ended up settling in the area of Canaan, it sort of goes all the way back to Noah that there's this sexual perversion that runs in the family. And if you know anything about family dynamics, once sexual perversion comes into a family, it does tend to perpetuate in that family. And sometimes it takes a really hard change in that family to stop that dysfunctional cycle from perpetuating in that family. The reason why we wanted to go over this story is that there's a common thread running through the book of Genesis is that people are grabbing things. Okay, no pun intended here. Um, People are seizing or going after things. They have a legitimate desire, but they're pursuing it in illegitimate ways. So for example, Adam and Eve, they want to be like God and they try to short-circuit the process and eat that fruit. Um, They do it prematurely. Um, Even in the story of, uh, you know, the flood, uh, even though the watchers or the sons of God were the ones who initiated, 
they they had to have a carrot out there. There was something that humans were seeking that they entered into a partnership with them and they pursued things in an illegitimate way that ended up corrupting them. And even in this story, you have Ham who has a legitimate desire to have preeminence, to have a certain level of control over their life, but he pursues that desire in an illegitimate way. It's really interesting to me that there's this, there is a common thread from Genesis 6 onwards of that illegitimate desire being expressed in sexual ways, and it does have a thread there about a seed. And this goes all the way back to Genesis 3 about this conflict uh, between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And, you know, human bodies are very much a part of this hostility and tension from Genesis 3 onward. Yeah, it's definitely true that things are passed on from generation to generation. And we see that even in the next chapter in Genesis 10 with the descendants of Ham and kind of how that keeps playing out. Yeah, Genesis 10 is really interesting because it actually traces the genealogy of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and they list 70 nations that come out of them, 70 different people groups. But we do want to trace this line of Ham and uh, get into this figure called Nimrod because that's going to set us up for our next episode in our podcast. So we're going to start reading Genesis 10, starting with verse 6 and go through verse 12. The sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, which is actually means Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havila, Sabta, Rama, and Saptaka, and the sons of Rama were Sheba and Dedan. And you're probably thinking, why are we reading this? <laughs> we're gonna have a quiz at the end. <laughs> it, it is a little bit of filler. We're gonna just keep moving. So the thing we want to just take note of here is that Ham has a son named Cush. And in verse 8, it says that Cush begot Nimrod. Now, this Nimrod figure is kind of cryptic, but, uh, you know, in the Hebrew language, they don't have vowels. Uh, They only have consonants. And the letters N-M-R-D mean rebel. And so right off the bat, we're looking at somebody who was known for being rebellious, He's like, well, who were they rebelling against? And it goes on to say that he began to be a mighty one on the earth. Now, this term mighty one is is the word gibor, and it's also used to describe the Nephilim in Genesis 6. And so the writer is wanting to create some association here. He's saying, look, this guy Nimrod is sort of walking in the footsteps of the events that took place in Genesis 6. There's some rebellion. There's some grabbing of power. There's some engaging and interacting with rebellious divine figures. So that's, it's kind of a cluster of meaning that the writer is trying to get us to pay attention to here. In verse 9, it says, He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. Not only was he rebellious, but he was also very domineering. And it's not that he's hunting down caribou, okay? (laughs) He's probably hunting people. He's probably a dictator. The fact that it says that he does this before the Lord 
it kind of gives you that feel like he's just putting it in God's face, that he's very independent and he's kind of boastful in God's presence about his accomplishments. And in verse 10, it gets kind of even more interesting because he's not just a hunter, he's not just rebellious, but he's actually a city builder. It says the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, which is what we're going to talk about in our next episode. Uh, Erech, Echad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Now, Shinar is the land of Mesopotamia. It's where the Tigris and Euphrates run. It's the Fertile Crescent. And so, essentially, what Nimrod does is he starts on the south end of the Fertile Crescent, and he starts building cities, and he goes northward. And then verse 11, it says, From that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth and Ur and Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the principal city. Now, the thing I want to draw attention to here is in the story of Ham and the story of Nimrod, there's this common need. There's a legitimate desire to have an element of influence over your environment, a need to have a level of control. And in Nimrod's case, he was obviously had a, an entrepreneurial itch to scratch. Okay, but the common thread here is that the legitimate need is fulfilled and satisfied in an illegitimate way. This is something you're going to see throughout a lot of the narratives in Genesis, is there's something good underneath what's going on there because we're made in the image of God. So God says Adam and Eve are supposed to have dominion, but it's misdirected. The desires are misdirected. It's going to come up that, you know, his first city that he founds, we're going to get a, a snapshot of what that looked like. And it's, it's, it's quite concerning uh, what his agenda was in that area. And I think that's what we're talking about next week, right? That's right. Yeah, we're getting into the, the Tower of Babel next week, which was founded by Nimrod. Yeah, if you follow this closely, it's definitely a pretty serious level of corruption that um, is happening and, and that it's leading to. But I think if we're all honest, we have definitely had legitimate needs, things, uh, desires, and we've tried to fill them in ways that are not including walking with God and not and not going about things the way that he has designed or the way he's leading us. So how does this relate to Jesus? How are we going to talk about Jesus in, in this particular scripture? Yeah, the, the passage that came to my mind was Jesus' temptation when he's in the wilderness and the devil takes him up on top of a mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and he says, hey, if you just bow down and worship me, all these kingdoms will be yours. And, you know, this is in Matthew 4.10. He says, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you sh- uh, shall you serve. And then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. You know, we, we're fooling ourselves if we think Jesus didn't have a desire to control and to have a level of influence over his life. And he too had that innate desire to want to have dominion over things, people, or situations in his life. And it's a temptation that he had to resist. You know, the, 
the beautiful thing about Jesus is that he only he only went after things in the way that the Father designed those things to be gone after. He only per, he only uh, pursued his desire in ways that were legitimate. So this this kind of boomerangs back to our next episode we're going to talk about because Nimrod was seeking to be in contact and was seeking a stronger relationship with demonic forces to establish his kingdom. And here we have Jesus being offered this same pathway. If you just link up with me, then we can take this thing by force. And Jesus just flats out resists it. He, he doesn't fall for it. God definitely has a best path, a best way of doing things. And some of it is written, you know, some of it is known and things that we can follow. And some of it is him speaking to us. Mm-hmm. But, you know, thankfully Jesus came and showed us, hey, you can do this. There is a way to resist these temptations to get things early or to not walk in God's path. And if you do it, it's going to be much better. Yeah, well said. I I think we should probably say, too, that I think it's important to you know, recognize that the, the desires in and of themselves are not wrong. It's, it's more about how we fulfill those desires. What, what is the chief object of our desire? And Jesus, of course, nailed it when he said, hey, you should only worship the chief object of your desire should be the Lord your God. Yeah, that is good. So we're going to wrap it up here. And we're talking about Babylon next week, mm-hmm. the Tower of Babel, if, if you haven't picked up on that. So thank you for listening and hope you will go and subscribe if you want to keep joining us in these conversations. We will catch you next time.